If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge to it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasures and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you seek the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be made as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall rise up the foundation of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasures on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own way or seeking your own pleasures or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the Good word morning. of the Lord. <clears throat> Always a pleasure to be with you guys. Um, back in January, we had one of our every other month prayer meetings, uh, all church prayer meetings. Uh, and um, I love those times when we come together, you know, communally meeting, seeking the Lord. Um, personally, I always get excited for these times because I'm really encouraged by your faith and I get to spend time with you guys and hear you pray. And, um, you know, it's interesting, but God's word describes the church as a living organism, that there are all these different parts and each part has a role. And so it came as no surprise that people came forward with, you know, words of exhortation and prophetic uh, encouragements. And actually on that day, this text was read, uh, specifically verse 12. Verse 12 says this, your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach 
and the restorer of streets to dwell in. The message here, uh, or at least at that time, was that we felt God wanted to use our church to be just that, to stand in the gap, to repair the breach. Um, and the next day, it was interesting, the elders uh, were all sort of had this email chain going back and forth, like, what did you really you know, get out of it? What, what do you feel like we need to pray about or press into? You know, how was God speaking? And uh, this text came up, there was a lot of buzz about that, um, that prophetic word. And it prompted me to spend some time reflecting on Isaiah 58. So I sat down and I read through the whole passage and I was actually really struck by this passage. And honestly, I've been sitting with this, praying through this, thinking about this for 10 months. And so when Brian approached me and asked me if I was willing to preach on Adoption Day, I said, yes, I'd be happy to do that. And I have exactly the text that uh, I know that I want to preach on that day. So hopefully today I'll have an opportunity to connect some dots for you all. And in so doing, we will you know, stoke our faith. Our faith will be built up. And um, I think in this text, God is addressing an issue that is really uh, the confluence of several important things. First, his prophetic activity in the church, right? The way that God speaks. Second, his own heart for the afflicted. And third, our church, our excitement about adoption and what adoption can look like, how it can be a redemptive work in the world. So first, a little bit about the background in this text. So this is coming from Isaiah's book of prophecy. Uh, it appears to address the concerns of God's people, the Israelites, as they have returned to the promised land after the exile. So if you don't know a lot about the history there, God called Abraham. He said, I'll make you father of many nations. First, he made them the father of the nation of Israel, God's ancient covenant people. Uh, they had all these great promises about how God would establish his throne forever and other nations would be streaming into the city of Jerusalem to like know God and meet God. And they were like basically the center of the spiritual universe. Um, but the people didn't really follow God. Uh, certainly not consistently. And so he brought some terrible events into their lives to help them understand how far off they were from his picture. One of those was the exile. And so the exile basically happens, uh, the nation of Assyria comes in and takes away probably 80% of the people. Then Babylon comes in and takes away the rest of the people. And they basically see their homes destroyed, the temple burned to the ground, uh, their cities ravaged, uh, people slaughtered in the streets and then they're marched off as slaves. So uh, you can imagine that this doesn't make a lot of sense and there's a lot of questions to ask and a lot of stuff to process, especially as they come back to the promised land because now the promised land, which was, you know, again, the center of God's redemptive universe, basically looks like modern day Syria. Everything is destroyed, right? Maybe there's still buildings smoldering from the fire. Um, and they have to think about what does it look like to try to rebuild? I mean, do we even bother rebuilding? Maybe all that other stuff was a lie. I don't know. What is God doing? Where is he now? And how do we revive faithful Judaism? So here in chapter 58, these prophetic writings are delivered to them in the response to their experience. Now, one of the things that did come out of this, which was positive, is seemingly positive, was that the people dedicated themselves to seek the Lord. And they began to pray and to fast. And they were, had a, a long period of uh, intense sort of religious activity trying to seek God or get his blessing or at least figure out what he wanted from them. But they felt that God hadn't really responded to them. And so we see that in verse three. But as uh, the prophet begins, he starts with this, verses one and two. He says, cry aloud, do not hold back. 
Declare to my people their transgression and to Jacob their sins. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. And if they, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. God accuses them of being a nation that does not do righteousness, but rather has forsaken his leading. In fact, this as if language paints God's people as two-faced. You see that here? They seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. Now we use this phrase as if uh, usually for some cheater or some betrayer, right? We'll say things like, don't come in here with roses for me as if I didn't see you with that girl last week. You lied to me. You think we could just move past that like it never happened? As if. Then we keep reading and we see that God has a complaint, but the people have a complaint. The people say, well, God, why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves, but you don't even pay attention? The people want to know, why are we doing all this religious work? God hasn't even blessed us. He hasn't brought us what we expected. The restoration of the nation hasn't come. And the Lord says to them two things, verses three through five. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress your workers. And then behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. So they're fasting, they're praying. With their right hand, they're seeking God, but with their left hand, oppressing the worker. With their left hand, throwing the left hook. Now I get pretty irritable when I don't eat. My wife reminds me that I get hangry a lot and uh, I should have a snack. And it's like a Snickers commercial in my house. But, but not to this level, right? God's people... They feel that God hasn't held up his end of the bargain, but God knows that it's the people who have come up short. You know, we do this sometimes. We'll try to make these bargains with God, right? In the time of distress, we'll turn to him. You're driving down the road and you, you see the red and blue and you pull over and you think, oh God, I'll never speed again if you let me out of this ticket, right? But God's not really interested in our bargaining. We assume that maybe he's on board and then we start to change things and we say, okay, where's the blessing? I've, I've, I've done what I was, said I was gonna do. And if God doesn't show up, we think God is the one who made a mistake. Interestingly, we see similar themes in the New Testament. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in his epistle, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You're concerned about what you're going to get. And God's people are doing what pleases them on his holy day. Not only that, they're seeking the blessing with one hand while at the same time doing whatever they want with the other, perpetuating violence and injustice. Their lives are incongruent, fragmented, and contradictory. Let me tell you, God is not impressed. He is looking for both spiritual fervor and compassion. Religious observance and justice. Righteousness isn't just the absence of guilt, but the presence of positive virtues, love, compassion, mercy, generosity. And God demands both a vertical reconciliation, 
that is between man and God, but also his horizontal reconciliation from one man to another, one person to another. Just look at verse five. God asks a question, several questions. He says, is this the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? When I first read this, my thought was, yes. I mean, actually, these things don't sound that bad, right? Humbling yourself, fasting, like these are religious activities. These spiritual people do that stuff, right? I don't know if you've ever been to like one of these Christian conferences and like the worship band is killing it and people are and they're falling down and they're kneeling in the aisles and you're thinking, man, God is moving because the people are bowing down. They're humbling themselves. That makes sense. Or sackcloth and ashes. We don't see this much in our day. This isn't a common thing, but the idea here is that what you're feeling on the inside, you're showing on the outside. That you're saying inwardly, I'm mourning. I'm mourning the loss of a loved one. I'm mourning sin. I'm mourning the brokenness of the community. And I want the world to know that I'm not satisfied with it. And so you put on basically like a potato sack and you get some ashes, you know, you're not putting in on makeup. Right? You're not styling your hair. You want people to know that something is wrong. This is meant to be and has typically been practiced throughout the scriptures as an authentic expression of deep spiritual connection with God. Connecting and acknowledging when God says something is broken, then you say, yes, it is. And so the people do all the right things on the outside. But the problem is this, that despite these seemingly sincere religious activities, there are clear areas of moral incongruence, sins of commission and omission. Verse three and four says what? They seek their own pleasure. They're oppressing the workers. They're quarreling. They're fighting. Their spiritual devotion cannot cover their moral bankruptcy. Fasting like this will not make your voice to be heard on high. So to help them out, God lays out what he wants. They are clueless, but he makes it plain. He says that was the false fast. This is the true fast. You would expect him to say things like, you know, say the prayers like this or avoid these things. But instead, he gives them a list. And that list is this. Free the oppressed, shelter the homeless, care for the poor, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, satisfy the afflicted. God is speaking loud and clear and his concern is not for religious activity, but for those who are on the margins of society. Wait a minute. What is this? This sounds like some social justice warrior agenda, not like an evangelical Christian's concern for the gospel. Yeah, I know. I was a little surprised too. But God doesn't fit neatly into our categories. He is the infinite, immutable, and transcendent creator of the universe. He's not red and he's not blue. He's not an either or kind of God. He is a both and kind of God. When we put him in a box, he bleeds over the edges because our categories cannot constrain him. And in this text, he says, this is my deep concern. Truth and grace. 
judgment and mercy, the gospel and justice. This is not a text about how to earn salvation. Israel's audience or Isaiah's audience was God's covenant people. Their covenant came through Moses. Our covenant, the new covenant is in Christ Jesus. And so we today, we know that we have access to God because we have his promises and forgiveness of salvation because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. However, simply gaining entrance into the club of God's chosen people isn't really the goal. The goal is to to know God, to be near him, to be made in his image and to become like him. So despite genuine faith in God, it is true that we can all make decisions with wrong priorities. Priorities that would slow or weaken or undermine our efforts to be made in Christ's image, remade in Christ's image. So when God calls his people to justice in this text, it is about how they can become the covenant of people that he created them to be. As much as it is about fulfilling a standard or doing the right thing. And some would say, well, man, this is Old Testament stuff. You know, Jesus abolished the law. We don't need this anymore. We aren't under the law. We don't have to worry about God's threat of judgment or about obeying all these commands. And I would say, yeah, there's some truth to that. In the new covenant of God's grace through faith in Jesus, we are all saved from the penalty of our sins, from failing to meet God's moral standard. We're saved on the basis of what Christ has done. That means that the work of earning God's favor and avoiding his wrath has been completed. It was completed by Jesus when he lived the perfect life and died on the cross. But it's important to consider two things about a passage like this. The first is that God delivered this message for a reason. When it came to the people, he had something he wanted them to learn and we can always learn from what God has done in the past. The second though is this. We may not be motivated by a text like this because of a fear of judgment, a fear of punishment, an invading horde or being exiled. But we have a more compelling reason to pay attention to this text. And that's this. Isaiah 58, like all of scripture, authentically and accurately reveals the heart of God. Consider this, as a parent in the Nelson household, there are generally two kinds of requests that I make of my children, right? Some are logistical. Look, you gotta clean up the playroom before we watch a video. You gotta brush your teeth before we go to bed. These aren't moral issues, but they're important nonetheless. I mean, they keep family life moving, okay? Should these requests be obeyed? Heck yeah, I'm dead. You should listen to what I gotta say. God made me authority in the home and authority should be followed. Come on. But there are other requests that I will make of my children that have far more urgency, moral authority. For instance, hands are not for hitting. That's not an arbitrary rule like bedtime is eight o'clock. If my kids go to bed at 7.45 or go to bed at 8.15, it's not the end of the world. Things will go on. Everybody will be fine, right? But if my children persist in resorting to violence 
to solve all their disputes, well, they'll grow up to bully, abuse, and take advantage of other people. They'll figure, oh, that's the way you do it because that's what we did growing up, right? That means that they will turn out to be terrible people because I failed to parent them. Parents, please save us from your children. (laughs) Train them in the way that they should go. Now, when I talk to my kids about that and I say, son, don't hit your sister. Generally, the conversation is something like this. We don't hit each other because in this house, we practice grace and respect. The world is full of people who will try to misuse you. But in this house, we treat each other like Jesus would treat each other because that's who we are and that's what we do. So when I'm talking to them, even when I'm threatening them with punishment, I'm trying to connect with their heart. I'm trying to tell them who they are and who they can be and what virtue is and motivate them with the positive. God is doing the same. He's pleading through the prophet, this is who I am. This is what I am concerned about. I associate with the lowly and the humble, the afflicted, the forgotten. That's who I am. And as my people, that's who you are. So when we read the Old Testament, we don't look to earn God's favor. We're not checking off our boxes to do all the right things. We're looking for his heart. Who is this God? And what does he love? He has shared his heart and he's calling his people to personal involvement in the lives of the afflicted. In the opening verses, the people are indicted for misusing their spirituality. He says, do this instead. Instead of selfish pursuits and unjust living, care for the lowly. What he doesn't say is feel bad for them. He's not calling them to sympathy, but engagement. God commands empathy. Now, what's the difference? Sympathy versus empathy. Brene Brown is a uh, nationally renowned professor of um, psychology and social work. And she talks about the difference between sympathy and empathy like this. She says, sympathy is feeling for someone. Empathy is feeling with someone. So when someone is in a deep hole, and they shout out, it's dark, and I'm overwhelmed, empathy climbs into the hole with them. And it says, I know what it's like down here. Sympathy looks in from above and says, wow, that is a dark hole. Well, at least it's not filled with water or alligators. You'll make it. Sympathy looks to reassure people with a caring response, but it's often a disconnected response. Rarely can a response make something better. What makes a hard situation better is a connection. And that's what empathy offers. Notice how God's suggestions each represent personal involvement in the lives of the downcast a climbing down into the hole with them, a shouldering of their burden. Painful, time-consuming, costly. Yes, yes, yes. 
but God is looking for action that leads to human connections. And then all these promises come. If you read this text, there are 17 promises in 14 verses. And the first six, five verses are just, here's what you've been doing wrong. The 17 promises in basically nine verses. And the promises are great. Talks about God satisfying his people, uh, the people being like a well-watered garden, a spring of water, you know, rebuilding, restoring, repairing, God dwelling with and leading his people. All of these are great. All of these are worth paying attention to, but I want to look specifically at verse 10. In verse 10, he says, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. Pour yourself out. If you were with us last week, you actually might remember that Brian discussed two passages from the New Testament, which use similar language. Uh, we have those here, 2 Timothy 4, 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Second, uh, Philippians two seventeen. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. In both these texts, Paul the apostle is looking forward and anticipating his own death. Rather than lamenting the end, he is celebrating the way that he has lived his life by God's grace. He is living sent and living spent. He has poured himself out, emptied himself for the church, given everything he's got, left it all on the field, sacrificing his body, whatever sports metaphor you can fit in there, for the sake of the gospel for the faith of those who are in these churches. It's interesting to me that God speaks about his people's responsibility to care for the needy and the afflicted with the same kind of language, that he would put caring for the hungry and the poor, clothing the naked at the, in the same category as Paul's effort for the gospel, that Paul has given everything he's got for the gospel. God does not pit these two things against each other, you know, the gospel or mercy. He is putting them both forward for us, commending them both to us to put equal effort and emphasis behind both ideas, spreading the message of Jesus Christ and caring for the practical needs of people who can't care for themselves. In fact, in God's infinite wisdom, he understands that one without the other is only half the story. Again, James, the brother of Jesus, in his epistle, says some important things on this matter. In verse uh, 127, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then he says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Sympathy or empathy? So also faith by itself, 
if it does not have works, is dead. This appears to describe God's people in the time of Isaiah's prophecy. They were faithful in their religious rituals. They didn't miss a day, didn't miss a beat, but they neglected works that would show forth the presence and reality of a true and vibrant faith. So what does all this have to do with Adoption Sunday? Well, let me read you some statistics on children who are in the American foster care system. As of 2016, there were an estimated 437,000 children in foster care. Now, 24% of kids who live in their own homes with their own parents will experience food insecurity in the next year. That is, where's the food for the next meal going to come from? I don't know. 50% of the kids in foster care will experience food insecurity. That's twice the risk. The hungry. Of those who graduate from foster care, 25% will not finish high school or get a GED. Only 50% of them will have a gainful employment by age 24. That's six years after they graduate, they still cannot get work. The poor. Upon turning age 18, they age out of the system. 20% of them will become immediately homeless because of no place to live, no job, and no family to take them in. The homeless. 25% of kids in foster care will experience emotional or physical trauma either in their birth home or in foster care and suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder in their adult years. The afflicted. And 60% of children in this country who experienced sex trafficking at some point in their life were involved in the foster care system. 60%. The oppressed. The hungry, the poor, the homeless, the afflicted, the oppressed. There are no doubt a thousand ways you can respond to this passage in Isaiah 58. But for us here at Jubilee Church, God has specifically placed the state of foster children on our hearts. In fact, over the years, we have benefited from having people who were formerly foster kids or experienced adoption be part of our church. If this experience that I'm talking about resonates with you, we're so glad you're here. We pray that you would stay with us and be with us and teach us how to care for you and others who experience what you've been through. And we're just as excited to bring more people in, more kids, unwanted pregnancies, abused kids, forgotten children. Ultimately, we're convinced that care that is delivered to a foster child fulfills the description of godly concern that's in Isaiah chapter 58. And beyond that, we're gripped with this reality, a vision that adoption and foster care not only sort of meets these criteria, but actually will usher in the blessing, that it is the blessing of these promises. Verse eight, verse eight talks about your healing will spring up to provide a safe home for a child in foster care away from trauma where they can begin to experience emotional healing. That's healing springing up. 
Mental health professionals will tell you that you cannot begin to heal from emotional trauma until you feel safe from trauma. Verse 10, then shall your light rise in the darkness. The light of God's glory will be on display among us when we see firsthand his healing power restoring lives, softening hardened hearts, illuminating darkened minds. We know that children are the most impressionable members of our society. And in fact, statistics tell us that the vast majority, 80 or 85% of people who become a believer, become a believer before age 18. That's when they're most open. We also know that there's probably no more fertile ground for the gospel of grace than a neglected child, right? Think about this. What, What more powerful incubator for spiritual development could there be than to take a child who is neglected and put them in a home where Christ is exalted, where people are walking the walk and then surround them with a community that can love them and care for them and mentor them. And they can see night and day the difference between what the family of God looks like and what other families look like. Verse 12, you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. There is an amazing reversal of fortunes for an abused or neglected child when they come into the church. From hungry to well-fed, from homelessness to safety, from neglected to nurtured, from rejected to accepted, And while rewriting the stories of one child is amazing and it's heartwarming, when that child comes to faith, we have altered the trajectory for their children and their children's children. Every person in this room can probably think of a person who prayed for them or prayed with them. And many of us can think about our own family legacy of spiritual understanding, how a parent shared their faith with us or a grandparent prayed with us. And that's part of the reason that we follow Jesus today. And so to change one life, we can change generations to come. When taken together in this context, we see how fostering and adoption fulfills God's desire for empathic engagement with the afflicted. And we can see that how when we live sent and we live spent, we can bring about transformation, transformation in the lives of these children, transformation in our community. I mean, that's what God's looking for. Transformation, not transaction. The people said, God, we've done all our religious duty. Bring us the blessing. Transaction. What God wants is, yes, Lord, as we follow your lead, would you empower us to change hearts, to change lives, to bring your grace, to be a transformation so that your light will shine in the darkness. The foster care safety net provides a lot of care to a lot of kids, but the system is overloaded and there is a breach in the safety net. How could we even begin to repair the breach? Well, the vision for, of caring for these kids, bringing them into our homes, right? This vision is a grand vision. Let's be realistic. It's difficult. It's as hard as it is heroic, but that doesn't mean it's not worth it. Remember, empathy asks us to climb down into the hole with those who are hurting. There's no such thing as drive-by empathy. I talked to a number of families who are hosting, adopting, and fostering, and they told me, interestingly, that 
the majority of their experience has been blessing. Yes, there's hard times, but they've been impressed with how blessed they feel, how thankful they have, are that they have been used by God to touch these lives and to know that it, it came through their boldness and their faithfulness to step out, to make room in their homes for these kids has, has buoyed their faith. Right? They feel their faith burning brighter because of how God is using them. So some of us here are feeling like, oh yeah, that sounds great, really pumped up. And some of us are like, man, heavy stuff. I'm not ready for that. That's okay. No matter what stage or state you're in, we should all ask ourselves this question. How can I take seriously the prophetic call of Isaiah 58? How can we corporately and individually respond in faithful obedience to God? The good news is the overall tenor of this passage is a corporate responsibility, something that we can share together. If you don't feel called to foster and adopt, that's okay. There are many people here who do, and they need our support. So in your bulletin, you should have this uh, card entitled Adoption Day Partnership and Support. On the back, there's a list of helpful and practical ways that you can help us create the supportive community that these children need. It takes a village right? And you can help at any stage of the process. You can begin with prayer, praying for vulnerable children, praying for adoptive and foster families, praying that God's heart of compassion would be recreated in all of us, right? You can help adopting families as they prepare. They're going to need, um, you know, to turn the guest room into a nursery. They're going to need help getting all that gear I and mean, that was my favorite thing when we were having our kids was to get on YouTube and watch all the videos and figure out, oh, which ergonomic baby carrier has the most durability and extra cup holders? Like, that's the one I want. <laughs> Families are going to need lots of help. It's no secret that uh, the cost of adoption can be a huge barrier. And so we've got our adoption fund. You can contribute to that. But having kids in your home is a huge challenge as well. And so families, they need constant support. Parents need friendship. Children need mentorship. Parents need a night off if you want to offer some babysitting. All of these things are ways that we can care for the afflicted. In Isaiah 58, God's people, they're described as seeking God, delighting to know his ways, and consistently attending their worship services, but their efforts are found lacking. Their crime is this. Though they are emotionally engaged on Sunday, they have not replicated the proper spiritual values Monday through Saturday. We don't want to put all of our attention on Sunday and neglect Monday through Saturday. God calls us to a life of worship, not a day of worship. And so for modern Americans, we're going to have to take some time to really consider what that looks like. We may have to reprioritize our lives there may be some things we have to take out in order to make room for these kids. But to invest ourselves for the poor, for the afflicted, for the marginalized, so that God's grace and power can rush through us and we can be a well-watered garden, a spring of water, a place of flourishing, so that we can be the repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to dwell in is worth it. In Matthew's account of Jesus' life, 
Jesus has this to say about the religious leaders of his day. He says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You've paid attention to the herbs in your spice rack, but you've neglected these things, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. We don't want to be guilty of attending to our religious rituals while neglecting the weightier matters. Righteousness and mercy. We want instead to live up to this name, repairer of the breach, restorer of steeds to dwell in. Together, by God's grace, And by his spirit, we can make Isaiah 58 a reality in the city, in Sunset Hills, and Washington at the lake. Not just as God's response to our good deeds, but actually God working through our deeds to bring transformation, not transaction. Let's pray.